0: Her courageous, spontaneous refusal to give up her seat to a white man sparked the bus boycott, which gave birth to an entire movement. That's what we've been told up till now. But do we really know Rosa Parks? And the answer, according to our guest this evening, is very definitely no. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Daniel L. McGuire. What starts here changes the world. Well, I've got to admit, I kind of like it. What starts here changes the world. We are the music makers. And we are the dreamers of dreams. The average American will meet 10,000 people in their lifetime. I was handcuffed to another man from another tribe whose language I did not speak. Don't think. Feel. But if every one of you changed the lives of just 10 people, and each one of those people changed the lives of another 10 people and another 10. We did not know each other. And we could not speak to each other because if we could have spoken to each other, we might have been able to figure out what was happening to us. I refer first to the need for far greater public information. To the need for far greater official secrecy. And you can change the entire population of the world, 8 billion people. And if we could have figured out what was happening to us, we might have been able to prevent it. If you think it's hard to change the lives of 10 people, change their lives forever. Well, that didn't happen. and Here we are. You're wrong. Are you better better off than you were four years ago? When I hear your new ideas, I'm reminded of that ad. Where's the Where's the beat? They're looking for help. They're looking for help. They're not looking for more of the same. When people lose their jobs, there's a good chance I'll know them by their names. When a factory closes, I know the people who ran it. When the when businesses the business go bankrupt, bankrupt, I know them. Well, Governor, we well, also we have fewer forces, forces and, bayonets and bayonets, because the nature of our military's changed. We have these things called aircraft carriers, where planes land on them. And when we get enough money, honey, we'll bring you down. But their children were saved, and their children's children. Generations were saved by one decision, one person. Changing the world can happen anywhere, and anyone can do it. So what starts here can indeed change the world. But the question is, what will the world look like after you change it? Welcome to Public Access America. In 1944, in Abbeville, Alabama, a black woman named Reese Taylor walked home from a church revival. A carload of white men kidnapped her off the street, drove her to the woods, and brutally gang raped her. When they finished, they dropped her off in the middle of town and they threatened to kill her if she told anyone what happened. But that night she told her father, her husband, and the local sheriff the details of the brutal assault. A few days later, the Montgomery NAACP called to say they were sending their very best investigator Her name was Rosa Parks. It was 11 years before the Montgomery bus boycott. And 11 years later, this group of homegrown activists would become better known as the Montgomery Improvement Association, vaunting its president, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., to international prominence and launching a movement that would ultimately change the world. Now, Rosa Parks carried Reese Taylor's story back to Montgomery where she and the city's most militant activists organized a national and international protest for equal justice for Mrs. Reese Taylor. The Chicago Defender called it the strongest campaign for equal justice to be seen in a decade. But when this coalition first took root, that would later become the Montgomery Improvement Association, Dr. King was still in high school. The 1955 Montgomery bus boycott, often heralded as the opening scene of the civil rights drama, was in many ways the last act of a decade-long struggle to protect African-American women like Recy Taylor from sexualized violence and rape. In fact, the kidnapping and rape of Recy Taylor was not unusual in the segregated South. From slavery through the better part of the 20th century white men abducted and assaulted black women with alarming regularity and often <coughs> impunity. They lured black women and girls away from work with promises of steady Uh, pay and better wages. They attacked them on the job. They abducted them at gunpoint while traveling to or from home, work, or church. And they sexually humiliated, harassed, and assaulted them on buses, in theaters, and other places of public space. This was a pattern throughout the South during the 1940s and the 1950s and it underscored the limits of Southern justice. But black women did not keep their story secret. They reclaimed their humanity by testifying about these brutal assaults. And their testimonies often led to larger campaigns for civil rights and human uh, dignity. In fact, even the most oft-told and illustrious campaigns for civil rights, Montgomery, Birmingham, Selma, the 1964 Freedom Summer in Mississippi, they often have an unexamined history of gendered political appeals to protect black women from sexual violence. Now, most of you here tonight probably know something about the Montgomery bus boycott. According to popular history, who and what caused the boycott? Anyone? Rosa Parks. And what was it about Rosa Parks? Pardon me? Uh, What caused her to defy the rules on the bus? She was tired! She had tired feet! That's right! She had tired feet. Well, when asked the same question, Joe Asbell, the former editor of the Montgomery Advertiser, talked about somebody else. He talked about Gertrude Perkins. Gertrude Perkins is not even mentioned in the history books. But she had as much to do with the bus boycott and its creation as anyone on earth. Now, Gertrude Perkins loomed large enough in Asbell's mind to remember her 40 years after the fact when he gave this interview. Yet most histories of the bus boycott fail to even mention her name. And if you're anything like me, when hearing this, you're like, who the heck is Gertrude Perkins? Well, Gertrude Perkins was an African-American woman, 25 years old, who was abducted and assaulted by two white Montgomery police officers on March 27, 1949. I'll let Reverend Solomon Say Sr. explain What happened that night? Two policemen had picked her up and taken her down on the railroad and had all types of sex relations with her at that particular time. And when when they put her out, she came to my door and she told me what had happened to her. I sat down and wrote what she said had happened to her, word by word. And when she had finished, I had it notarized and sent it to Drew Pearson in Washington. And Drew Pearson went to, to the air with it. And when the power structure knew uh, anything here in Montgomery, what Gertrude Perkins said happened to her was all over the nation. After Gertrude Perkins told Reverend Say what happened, she somehow mustered the courage to report the crime to the police, perhaps even the same men who had raped her. Not surprisingly, the police dismissed her claim and accused her of lying. The mayor claimed Perkins' charge was, quote, completely false. And he said holding a lineup or issuing any warrants would set a bad precedent. Besides, he said, my policemen would not do a thing like that. But blacks in Montgomery knew better. Montgomery's police force had a reputation for racist and sexist brutality. In fact, just a few years few years earlier, police had abducted and raped the 16-year-old daughter of a black woman who challenged a police officer on a bus one day. Well, as word of the attack on Gertrude Perkins spread, club women, NAACP activists, labor leaders, and ministers rallied to her defense. They formed an umbrella organization called the Citizens Committee for Gertrude Perkins, and they demanded an investigation and a trial. Their public protest garnered enough attention to keep the story on the front pages of the white daily newspaper, The Montgomery Advertiser, for nearly two months. The sustained attention finally forced a grand jury hearing where Gertrude Perkins testified on her own behalf. The county solicitor swore at her and accused her of lying, but she stood her ground and she maintained her composure. Her brave testimony did not impact the all-white, all-male jury, however, who failed to indict any of the officers. In an editorial designed to put any hard feelings to rest, the Montgomery advertiser said, the case ran the full process of our Anglo-Saxon system of justice. What more could have been done? Well, members of the Citizens Committee for Gertrude Perkins would have preferred an indictment and a lengthy jail sentence, but they were thrilled with the amount of public protest that their campaign had yielded. But Montgomery seemed to have more of its fair share of what Roy Wilkins called sex cases. In fact, the Reese Taylor and Gertrude Perkins cases did not occur in isolation. In February 1951, a white grocery store owner named Sam Green raped a black teenager named Flossie Hardman. Green had employed her as a babysitter and frequently drove her home after her shifts. Well, one night, he pulled to the side of a quiet road and raped her. That night, she went home, she told her parents what happened, and they decided to press charges. When an all-white jury returned a not guilty verdict after deliberating for only five minutes, the family reached out to Rufus Lewis, a World War II veteran and celebrated football coach at Alabama State (coughs) University. Lewis, along with Edie Nixon, who was head of the Montgomery NAACP and head of the Alabama Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, they organized a campaign to boycott Green's store. They brought together women's groups like the Women's Political Council and labor unions, perhaps even the same people who had organized to defend Reese Taylor. After only a few weeks, African-Americans delivered their own verdict in the case by driving Green into the red. In fact, they shut down Green's grocery store and that ability to shut down his grocery store constituted a major victory. Not only did it establish the boycott as a powerful weapon for justice, but it also sent a message to whites that African Americans would no longer allow white men to disrespect, abuse, and violate black women's bodies. Now, besides police officers, few were as guilty of these crimes as were the city's bus operators who bullied and brutalized black passengers daily. Worse, bus drivers had police powers. They carried blackjacks and often guns. And they assaulted and sometimes even killed African-Americans who violated the racial order of Jim Crow. In 1953 alone, African-Americans filed over 30 complaints of abuse and mistreatment on the buses. Most of these complaints came from black women, mostly working class women who were domestics, who made up the bulk of the Montgomery City, City Lines ridership. Drivers hurled nasty, sexualized insults at black women, they touched them inappropriately and often physically abuse them. One woman remembered bus drivers sexually harassing her as she waited on the corner. The bus was up high, she said, and the street was down low. They drive up and expose themselves while I was just standing there. It scared me to death. Another remembered that bus drivers treated black women just as rough as can be, she said, like we're some kind of animal. Ill treatment on the buses denied black women a sense of dignity and demonstrated that they were not worthy of respect or protection. This belief was part of a long-standing pattern that allowed white men to use and abuse black women for the better part of even the 20th century. But when we consider this within a spectrum of racial and sexual violence, with rape and lynching on one end and these daily indignities on the other, attacks on black women's bodily integrity underscored both their physical and their sexual vulnerability in a racial caste system. And so it was much easier, not to mention safer, for black women to just stop riding the buses than it was to bring their assailants, often bus drivers and police officers, to justice. In fact, without these women, the bus boycott would have failed. African-American women ran the day-to-day operation of the boycott, the everyday details, the spade work. They helped staff the elaborate carpool system that kept the boycott running. They raised most of the local money for the movement. They filled the majority of pews at the mass meetings, where they testified publicly about physical and sexual abuse on the buses. By walking hundreds of miles to protest humiliation, African-American women reclaimed their bodies and demanded to be treated with dignity and respect. And so while the Montgomery bus boycott is often portrayed as a spontaneous and often male-led movement, it's important to note that the Montgomery bus boycott has a past. It's rooted in the struggle to protect and defend black womanhood from racial and sexual violence. And I think it's impossible for us to understand and situate the boycott in its proper historical context without understanding the stories of Reese Taylor and Gertrude Perkins, and the others who were mistreated in Montgomery. In fact, without this history, it's impossible for us to understand why so many black women walked for so long to protest mistreatment on the buses. Now Montgomery was not the only place where attacks on black women fueled protests against white supremacy. Civil rights campaigns in Little Rock, Arkansas where Daisy Bates, the heroine of the Little Rock School desegregation campaign, had used her newspaper for a decade to publicly shame white men who assaulted black women. Or Albany, Georgia in 1962, where local people organized to defend black women at Albany State College from white men who frequently broke into their dorms and prowled around campus at night. Or Birmingham and Selma, Alabama in the early 1960s, whose police and bus drivers were notorious for their racist and sexist practices. For Mississippi during the 1964 Freedom Summer, where black women activists who were arrested were often beaten and sexually abused while they were in prison. All of these major campaigns had roots in organized resistance to sexualized violence and gendered political appeals to defend black womanhood. All of this despite a growing body of literature that focuses on the roles of black and white women and the operation of gender in the movement, analyses of rape play little or no role in most histories of the African American freedom struggle, even as we focused on racist violence against black and white men like Emmett Till and Goodman and Schwerner and Cheney. All of these provide gripping examples of racist brutality, but we ignore what happened to black women. In order to truly understand the civil rights movement, we need to understand these stories. We need to understand this history. Truth. tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. Everybody Everybody things it. it's, a it's a depression. In this lifetime, you don't have to prove nothing to nobody except yourself. But it ain't about it's how hard you hard. get. It's, it it's about how hard you, hard. you, hard. you get. They keep moving keep forward. forward. How much you how take, take it. keep moving, moving forward. forward. That's how we start. I wanted to run out of that tunnel. Access America on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and now Facebook. Public Access Public America. America. History, in History, making. 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 History, History in the making. Making. History in the making.